There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Burris. Now, in the lead-up to Veterans Health Week, which is next week, I'm speaking with one of our country's in my view, most inspiring heroes, and his name is Garth Callender. In 2004, Garth was on a routine patrol in Baghdad, which was in Iraq, when his vehicle was hit by an IED, which is an improvised explosive device. And it made him the first serious Australian casualty in the war in Iraq. But incredibly, he was able to overcome that physical and psychological trauma, and he was redeployed to the Middle East and ended up in Afghanistan. And all that time... And all his training, what he was seeing was ways to mitigate the clear threats that might be approaching him and his platoon at any one particular time. And what he's done is he's taken from that experience, those skills that he built up over that long period of time and that exposure to the most extreme threats, to build a consultancy firm called Trebuchet Pivot, and we do talk about what that hell that means. But in this business, he applies the same methodology he learned in the army to manage risk and crises in the corporate world. I'm going to ask Garth about the tragic event that left him fighting for his life, how his experience in the army has influenced not only how he runs his own business, but advises other businesses too. We are in an era where you cannot avoid managing risk You cannot avoid being responsible for those people who work for you and all your customers, and you must assess risk often. So let's get into it. This is the guy who's going to help you do it. Garth Callender, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, it's it's great to have a a veteran sitting across the the table from me and a veteran who, by all intents, is is in business as well. We're going to talk about the business in a sec. I wanted to talk to you, though... You know, because I guess everybody wants to talk to you about this sort of stuff. Um, what's it mean to be a veteran, mate? Like, uh, I don't know, how old are you now? Uh, I'm 42. 42, okay. So, hardly a veteran of life. Um, you're, you're a young fella. Yeah. yeah but you're I'm, a veteran of, of the war. Yeah, and I'm probably a bit different to what people think of when they think of a veteran. I'm, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they say, oh, veterans, an old guy. Vietnam era guy, yeah. World War II. RSL. Yeah. Um, whereas a lot of guys I work, they're in their 20s and, and, and you know, fly the flag of being a veteran. So. And what does it mean? What, what does it actually, I don't mean what does it mean to you, but 
How would you define being a veteran then, like a, a war veteran, as opposed to like in your category in the 42-year-olds? Where did you go to war? What did you do? Tell me about it. Yeah. Well, I think the definition of veteran, sort of the almost the, the, the dictionary, somebody who's, who's seasoned in their role, somebody who knows what they're doing, who's experienced. And would you say you're seasoned in the role of being at war? Uh, yeah, look, I've, I've... Or being a soldier? I mean, which one? What yeah, is it? I've been in the military for nearly 25 years now um, in full-time capacity and in part-time capacity. Um, so, yeah, I, and I've deployed uh, on multiple occasions to, to war zones. So. Okay, let's just go back a sec, okay. I mean, like, this because it's all foreign to me. I mean, I'm, I'm in the I'm in a different war game. I'm in the corporate war. As, <laughs> There's a lot of similarities, actually. There is, <laughs> but it's slightly less... Uh, the gravity is slightly less in, the, in that you don't die, but generally speaking, all the other shit applies. <laughs> um, everything else you can get, certainly get traumatised by it, but... Uh, Let's just go back to when you were a, a young bloke, maybe 15 or 16, you're at school. Yep. Why, what was going through your head? Do you think, shit, I'm going to become, I'm going to join the army or would your mum boot you up the arse and say, mate, you're going to join the army because you're a naughty boy? Um, what was, happened? I was completely the opposite. So I was just a directionless teenager, didn't know what I was going to do and uh, ended up somehow getting enough marks to go to uni, did that for 12 months, said, this is not for me. And at the time, the military had their, what they called the Ready Reserve Program, which was the mid-90s meant you could join up for a year rather than signing up for four years. And it was designed to get people who were coming for a year and then go back to uni and they sort of funded some of your uni and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but, so because uh, I think you used to get, if you did that, you got paid, what you got paid was tax-free or something. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. And, and you got some incentive for just turning up those those years post that, that, that full-time period. So I think you had to do 20 days or something like that and then you got a commitment bonus and things like that, which right. all sounded really good. There's money in the the tin helps you get through university. Yeah. And did you go back to uni for this no. one year? So I, I joined for a year and then 25 years later, here I am. So, so we come and try and before you buy yeah. and you, so 25 years ago, you went and had a one year taste of the whole thing and you decided to stay. Like, what, like, why'd you stay? Why didn't you go back to uni? Well, I mean, where were you from Sydney? I am from Sydney originally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So did, where has this happened? Does this happen down in Canberra or where, where's this uh, one year out? So I ended up, I was all over the place. So I went to, uh, went to recruit training, which was down at Puckapunyal, so Puckapunyal, just outside yeah. Melbourne. Yep. Uh, for three months, then uh, got- Place made very famous by Vietnam and uh, certain certain songwriters. Yep, absolutely. Um, and then to Singleton, to the School of Infantry, where we got flogged for three months there. And what does then, that mean, you got flogged? So it's very physical course. So it's, it's a rifleman's course. So it's basically, it's, it's learning how to walk a really long way with a pack on your back and how to shoot a rifle and- all those really fundamental soldier skills that you need for operating out in the bush um, with not a lot of resources. You're like survival so, course sort of thing? Um, it, it was how to fight, really. There was aspects of survival to it, yeah. Because, I mean, like uh, often I hear of um, the roosters, we do it. We, we send our players on um, like boot camps but with soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Souths do the same things, the Rabbitohs. Um, and these guys go for three or four days and uh, they get sleep deprived and all that sort of stuff and they talk about it and they th- say it's the hardest thing they've ever done and uh, these are you know, great big strong physical blokes you see running at each other 110 kilos each. Um, yet you do this stuff for three months. I mean, t- is it that hard? I mean, I've never tried. I don't know. I've got no concept of it. Yeah, look, and I, I've been in and out of training establishments, particularly on, early in my career, and some of those field activities are, are really really challenging. A lot of field craft involved, but it's very physical and, and can be very mentally draining too. So do they, like, do they, when, they, when you say mentally draining, do they sort of get to a point where you think, fuck, I've got to get out of here, like I can't do this anymore? No, no, You no. don't so, get to that challenge? Look, there are some people that do. Um, the military is absolutely not for everyone. 
uh, and there are some people that just don't don't enjoy that, don't like it, and really struggle with with those aspects of the training. So. Yeah, but and, but how do you get over it? I mean, how, how is it that you're not one of those people? What, what, maybe what maybe I'm you, just a knucklehead. I don't know. How's a day on one of these camps go? So it, it depends. So it has quite a rigorous and, and structured training program. Yep. So three months of getting flogged, um, but say there's going to be weeks which are in barracks, which is a lot of physical training. So you might get up in the morning, do an hour's physical what time training. Do you get up? Um, so on those training courses, they'd be six in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And then breakfast, maybe some learn some field skills, maybe do some weapons training. In the afternoon. What does that mean though, Garth? I mean, because I mean, you 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 know this stuff backwards. We we have yeah. no idea. So, what does a field skill mean? Does it mean rolling, doing rolls down the hill, or shooting a gun? What what does that mean? Yeah, could be shooting a gun. Um, uh, how to operate out in the bush uh, on your own, or as a small member of a small team. And what does that mean? Though? Does that mean uh, how to catch a goanna and skin it and eat it, or does it? I mean, are we talking no, about no, not uh, at all? No. no. Um, so there's a funny little thing that happens in the military, which is we always seem to train for the last war. And when I was doing this course, we were very much doing a lot of the training, which was relevant probably for Vietnam. Right. So it was a lot of living in in the jungle, operating in the jungle, knowing how to everything from keeping yourself clean and your feet from falling apart um, yep. when they're wet through to how to collect water, but then it's all done with a threat scenario built around it. So you have a an enemy there uh, who is trying to kill you, is trying to learn information from you, um, and you know, this is obviously all with blank rounds and those sorts of things, but uh, yeah. So, so, so you're, you're, you're with a crew, like a little gang, a little yes, group? Yes, so, so a section or a platoon. So a section's 10, 10 people and a platoon's three sections, so 30 people. Right. And you might have uh, someone firing blanks over your shoulder at middle of the night. Yeah. Are they actually there? To, I mean, is that just another group? Yeah. Is yeah, yeah. So they ha- and a lot of these, so the, at Singleton or Duntroona, places like that, they have training support platoon, which are professional enemies. So they, right. they go out and yeah, have enemy tactics and uniform. And yeah, so, okay. Specifically to train us. And uh, I guess that's pretty stressful um, and uh, full of um, – um, and I, and I, so what are you doing all the time, like as an individual or maybe even the leader of the team, as you progress through the years, I guess you, you build into leadership positions. Mm. Are you always – I don't know how the hell you rest. I'm like if, I, if I'm sort of there out in the bush and I'm thinking there's a, an attack team coming towards me, they're, they're probably waiting for you to go to sleep. And because um, that's what I'd be doing if I was in attack, I'd be trying to get you by surprise or, or sneak up on you. Yep. So I guess your brain must be ticking over all the time, thinking to yourself while you're trying to sleep. Yep. You're on the other side. Uh, what's coming over the hill? Yeah, and you're asking about some of the challenges. And I, I love my sleep, and that's one of the things I detested about the training stuff is getting woken up in the middle of the night with these things. So you did get woken up in the middle. Yeah, of the night. or and you have to, you know, you have what they call pickets. So out of your section, two people are always awake. So you spend a couple of hours sitting up in the middle of the night making making sure nobody's sleep, um, sneaking up on you. Right. Um, like you rotate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, love my sleep. Detested. Uh, yeah, it was me last night. My fucking dog woke me up <laughs> um, at 2 a.m. I decided to want to have a walk around the house. I just thought it was someone in my house because he's pretty heavy. Yeah. And, uh, and I, then I eventually saw it was him. Um, it freaked me out. Um, yeah, I agree. There's nothing worse than me waking up to in the morning. And I, and, but I, I guess if you're going to bed... And you think there's a threat? Well, there definitely is a threat. The attack group's going to come and I don't know, steal your biscuits or whatever they do. Yeah. Um, you're always assess- assessing risk all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Risk right. assessment. Yep. 
and then you've yeah. got to work out how to de-risk the situation too, I guess. And yeah. it's part of the de-risking, having two dudes sitting up there and for two hours, another two dudes, is that part of the risk management? That's that's one of the mitigations, yeah. So, of course, you know, to, to minimise the risk of somebody sneaking up, up in you in the middle of the night, you'll have two guys awake the whole time. Yeah, but um, you have four sets of eyes, or four eyes, as opposed to uh, one set of eyes. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of that, that dis- that uh, who makes a decision to have two instead of one? I mean, if, you've got ten in a... So lo- logistically two works because you stagger there. So say so one starts at 11, another starts at 11.30. Right. That means there's, you can always have somebody there stationary watching if the second person has to go and wake someone up. So go and, goes and have, has to wake the commander of the team up or has to go and wake the next person up for... For picket things like that, right? For, we call it a picket, do you? Picket, yeah. So, so really, what you're talking about here is just just by way of example, field skills is a good example of that. Is actually is the process or the system, and getting used to the process and the system. In other words, executing on it on a process and system. And I guess you've got to try and refine it too. But it's about experiencing pretend yeah. experiencing. What would happen, or how this the risk is always there of getting attacked when you're out at night or anywhere daytime too. But what you're trying to do is practice the experience of managing the risk of the event occurring. Yeah, and and risk is a term which is quite foreign. A lot of aspects of the military, it's not a term which gets used a lot. No, but that mentality is absolutely there. It's just we we're always assessing threat, things like yeah. that. You're always doing your own internal risk assessments, um, you're always looking at those mitigation strategies. But, yeah, it was only when I sort of started getting into the business world um, uh, I really sort of understood how risk was or or what I've done in the military is relevant around the risk space, yeah. It's sort of an interesting thing when you look at the military So, and and relative to business. So um, in my playbook I talk about playing defence I have chapter two is about playing defensively. It's about, um, and I say defence wins games and I say defence wins wars. Yep. I mean, I don't know anything about war. I've never been to war, but I, I mm-hmm. have read books on this stuff and uh, I just know that that's a saying that people use, but I certainly know defence manages a business. Yep. And and uh, let's take the word risk out. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you can't eliminate risk. I mean, no. there's always the threat of somebody, the enemy trying to do something. What you can do is you can manage risk or, or you said mitigate it. Yep. But in in war or in uh, in battle, um, the the threat always exists, as it does in business. The game here is for the military to teach your section. What are the proven systems of mitigating risk? Mm-hmm. So, before you go out into the the jungle, I want to ask you this question: Before you get in the jungle, do they actually sit down and sort of give you a lecture or, or teach you or tutor you on? What are the best mi- uh, risk mitigants or threat mitigants, or do they just say just go out there and just do your best? Surprisingly, a lot of training in the military is quite academic. Um, there's a lot of physical stuff, particularly for the junior junior ranks. But as you progress up, they're they're really quite academic. A lot of the courses, and it's a lot around planning, um, uh, deliberate decision making, how to minimise risk. Um, even the the training activities themselves are. Uh, risk management strategies in themselves, you know, the the fact that we train people for for three months in basic soldier skills means that they come out a certain level 
and reduce a lot of the risk for the organisation because we know they can operate in in a certain capacity. Is the risk is and by the way I, that, that's a good question. That's a good point you raised. Is the risk about is the risk mitigants or the mitigating the threats? Is it about protecting the the, the military, the, the organisation, as you say, and therefore the country, or is it about protecting the individual? So the military is a is a capability based organisation. So What's they, that mean? So the government says we want to achieve an effect. So we want to have a presence in Iraq, or we want to have a presence in Southeast Asia region. Um, military, go and go and do it. So throughout the military are are groups who are on reduced notice to move at a who are trained at a certain level. So when the government says we want to do this, we have appropriate forces able to to achieve what the government wants. That's very um, interesting. And and, you, and what was your role? What, I mean, what were you? Uh, were you a you know were you a wrestler or a, like did you wrestle blades to the ground and or do we <laughs> did you pull out a bayonet or did you have a rifle? What did you uh, do? So did you have my, two, two, two big magnums on either side of your hip? No, no. no. So so I started as a rifleman. Um, so a, a junior junior soldier. I, I ended up going to Duntrue and came out a lieutenant. And I've been in Armoured Corps ever since. So. So I, I armored core means well. It's, it's uh, cavalry specifically. So it's uh, work with light armored vehicles, Australian light armored vehicles. So eight wheeled, thirteen ton amphibious. What like is that a tank or no? Uh, well, so so to put it in perspective, our tanks currently are nearly seventy ton. These vehicles are thirteen ton, so they're very light. Yeah, for a very light for an armored vehicle. But what do you um, just you mean like a ship comes in with or a barge or whatever comes in and just drops you off at the at the beach? Is that what happens? Yeah, so they're much more easily deployable than a right. tank, um, but they're much lighter. But these things uh, they're eight eight wheels. They'll, they'll go up to one hundred and ten kilometers an hour, so wow. you can do highway speeds on them. I wouldn't mind having one of them. That'd be cool to drive to work. They're pretty good, and we did a lot of training in in the Northern Territory, and you just scoot up and down the Stuart Highway in these things, and overtaking tourist buses. Do they look things. like Hummers or something? What do they look like? No, no, they look they look like little tanks. Oh to right. Be so they've got a two man turret, uh, and yeah. oh, with a gun on it. Yeah, so they've got a twenty five okay. millimeter gun, so a good serious gun, and real s- thick steel. It's um, it's not particularly thick, so it's nine millimeters, so yep. so just less than a centimeter. But it's it's what they call high hardened steel, so very high density steel. Right, very very tough steel. Yeah. And and the objective of those vehicles is to do what? They're very much a. They go out a, first, or an all, well, yes. So the the regiment I was in was was what they call medium range reconnaissance. So going out, understanding where the enemy is, feeding information back, tracking the enemy. Um, so they could, they talked about these these vehicles being eggs with a hammer. So they're quite soft, um, you know, quite quite thin armour on them. Relatively, yeah. Good gun, so you can get yourself out of trouble. Um, they're not designed for for necessary assaulting positions, things like that. So where you have tanks and and did you did, were you the driver or the passenger or the gunner or? So I've had I've had numerous roles, but being an officer, I was the patrol commander, uh, uh, patrol commander and, and troop leader. So I was so you were the front one or the back one or the middle one or whatever? No, so I was in charge of six of these vehicles. Right. And then as my career progressed, so I, I finished up as a, in in a, my last role in a cavalry organisation was a squadron commander. So I was in charge of uh, about 40, 40 armoured vehicles. And, and, and what exposure did you have to uh, uh, war zones? So I deployed twice to, to Iraq, um, to Baghdad. And which then, period? Which which war? So it was uh, two two thousand and four, right? And then again in two thousand and six, right? And 
And so in 2004, you were in one of these armored, the armored vehicles that slightly armored vehicles. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's, they're, they're pretty tough. They're pretty um, tough compared to, you know, a Commodore. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but when you rank them up against armored other armored vehicles, yeah. They're, they're and what and what did you see there? Uh what experience did you have there? I mean, what what happened? You're a veteran, so I mean, we hear all sorts of stories about veterans, um, and I often wonder, as everybody brews, but because I reckon it'd be a, a extraordinary experience, and I don't know how I'd take it, but like sort of seeing real life, real war, and real injuries. What did you see? Yeah, all of that, and yeah. like, mates. Did you see mates get hurt? Uh, yeah, well, I, so I got pretty badly wounded on my first trip over there. So uh, what happened? So I, I was. Uh, in one of these armoured vehicles and we had a, a roadside bomber, an improvised explosive device, go off next to my vehicle. Uh, and what does that mean? That's like a mine. Yeah, so improvised explosive devices sort of really came about in Northern Ireland. So taking an explosive and and, and improvising, fabricating some sort of triggering system or, or using it in a way almost like a booby trap. Yep. Um, you can have all sorts of different things. It's just terminology, meaning that it's it goes beyond a conventional landmine. It's, you know, this this one in particular was probably remote control detonated. So they used off-the-shelf technology at, at the time. They were using garage door openers and and remote controlled toy controls for detonating um, for detonating bombs. And what, what's in the, like when the bomb detonates, what are we just talking about? Um, TNT, what are we, what, what are we in there? What? Uh, so this, these, was um, likely four artillery rounds. So the thing about Iraq was that the country was just full of what they call explosive remnants of war. So artillery rounds that had been left in stockpiles as as the Iraqi forces were withdrawn or as the the Western forces had moved through the country, even a lot of leftover from the Iran-Iraq war. So a lot of explosive around the place. Uh, this was probably four artillery rounds in the back of a vehicle hooked up to a, a radio-controlled trigger. And so you guys are driving past mm-hmm. and someone's got the garage door opener and uh, from a distance and uh, activated the Yeah, there was a block of flats just near where where the, the incident was and there was likely a trigger man up there. And what happened? So a high explosive event is, is basically gas and debris moving at thousands of metres per second. So it right. um, generates a lot of heat, generates a lot of fragmentation. Uh, so I... I uh, got secondary burns to my face and neck, fragmentation wounds to my face and neck. Um, you, that means bits of metal or shit. Yeah, bits of shit. Yeah, yeah all so, over. Yeah, and, and and were you carted off to hospital or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was lucky. We, you know, I had a a couple of vehicles where the guys with me, so they were put in a cord, and American forces turned up. Um, a couple of my guys. So w- w- there were three of us in my vehicle, uh, and. The other guy in the turret with me was was injured as well, so we were carted off to hospital by one of one of my other vehicles, and uh, yeah, surgery in Baghdad flew me out to the coalition or the big US hospital in Germany. Had another operation there, and then uh, back here to Liverpool Hospital. But, but, the, uh, uh, that's in two thousand four, did you say? Mm-hmm. And what, yeah. what was like the, the net effect? Like how long did it take you to recover from the physical part of it? I was really lucky, in fact, that I was uh, my head. And, you didn't blow your fucking head off. Yeah, look, I, I did a lot of work. You know, you, being that close to to an explosive device does interesting things to you. One of them was gave me a real interest in in the the improvised explosive threat. So I, I started working in that field, uh, and I one of the things I saw was was that that there were smaller bombs, people further away, um, who 
who weren't anywhere near as lucky as me. So, yeah, a lot of luck involved in the fact that I'm still here today. Um, Permanent injuries? I've got quirks. So got a few little things like pins yeah. and needles. And, um, yeah, I've, I've got a bit of fragmentation in the side of my neck uh, and they, they operated on that um, really quick because I had a large hematoma develop and I thought I was going to cut off blood to my, to my brain. So they operated on, on me really quickly. So I've got, you know, um, scar tissue in the muscle down here. So I do get a lot of neck what pain. A, things what like. a PTSD? No, I've been, I, no, mental health, I've been really lucky. You're lucky. That's yeah. good. Because a lot of veterans do suffer from PTSD. And I'm sure you've got mates yep. who, who, who you know who are still suffering. And by the way, Veteran Health Week or Veteran Affairs Health Week next week. That's right. Uh, yeah. After this podcast is a really important period for Australians to recognise the importance of you know, understanding and being aware of what our uh, people at war and, uh, for Australia and what our veterans have to deal with once they come back. And that's a really important week, either physical health or mental health issues. And uh, I mean, and you're a sort of you're a walking example of someone who's been through that. And what we're going to, I'm going to go to the break now. But when we come up for the break, what are we going to talk about? Is you being even a better example of someone who's taken their their experiences in these environments and turned it into a business. Yep. And I'm actually intrigued to understand what you've done and how you've done it. So we just quickly go to the break. Um, and I, I want to say to you, um, on behalf of everybody listening, um, Australian and, 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 and in relation to Veteran Health Week next week, Veterans Health Week next week, um, all of Australia and I'm sure my listeners are very proud to have people like you in our environment and we really appreciate what you do for us because at the end of the day, none of us would do it or couldn't do it. And uh, so you're, you're understated and I know you're very modest, but I'm telling you that's really important to hear. I've got Matt here with me from allsales.biz who lists businesses for sale. Mate, what business are you showcasing this week? Good morning, Mark. This week we've got a cafe based in uh, Sydney CBD in the heart of the, uh, the city itself in Pitt Street Mall. And uh, were they just selling coffee? What's the deal? Coffee and chocolates. Uh, oh. It's a real, really nice chocolate focus. We've co- coffee and chocolates. I love it. That's my favourite at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's in Sydney. What sort of turnover are we talking about or price? Well, how do we get people interested in this in terms of range of money? Yeah, look, it's, it's quite interesting. So they're only looking at one times multiple. So they're making about 250000 a year on books. Uh, so we've, we've um, it's a great little business and 260 plus stock, walk in, walk out. So basically what you're saying is one time multiple means if, if they're making two hundred fifty grand a year basically and they're asking for around two hundred fifty grand. Correct. Okay, plus stock. Plus stock. And on top of that. Yeah, look, stock, it may only be five or $6,000. So okay. it's not a big deal. Well, that's affordable, and it uh, seems to me like it's not about a little business. If you're going to make 250 grand a year, um, I mean, sure, you're going to have to work for it, but 250 grand a year is 250 grand a year. That's big money today. Mate, I'll see you next week when you come and showcase your next business for sale. And if you're trying to buy a business, go to allsales.biz, and if you want to sell your business, go and talk to allsales.biz. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mark. Well, I'm back here with Garth Callender, and um, I haven't really introduced his business yet. We're going to talk about it now because this is a business show. Um, but what's really important is the lead up to what Garth's business is, is relevant in terms of the skills he got out of the lead up, the lead up being a war veteran. And uh, he's only 42, but he's called a veteran of war. Um, and But he's taken the, the learnings, experiences, and the skills associated with being a war veteran and turn it into a business venture. And we, we you know, we touched on all sorts of things. I, I, would, I would have loved to get deeper into a whole 
whole territory, but I guess my listeners are interested in the business aspects only. So we talked about when you are out in the bush and doing, you know, drills and training and, you know, might be away for three or four days with your section, your team of 10, and it doesn't really matter what, where you rank in that 10, um, there's a constant threat of something going wrong and the threat being based on probability and also gravity of the probability of the event occurring. And one of the things that you've got to do, and I guess that threat exists, you can't stop that threat, um, what you're trying to do all the time is manage the risk and assess the risk and manage the risk or manage the threat and assess the risk and build systems and processes around it. And off the back of that, um, that's that's a, like you know that's real risk, <laughs> that's death, um, and you it's you you yourself have experienced a near death experience, uh, experience. I mean you know, there's you probably knew there's always this threat of these um, what do you call them? Not mines. What do you call those? Uh, IEDs. IEDs. Device, 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 yeah. I- improvised explosive devices. There's always a threat of those mm-hmm. everywhere, yeah. especially in those places like you just said in Iraq, and you've learnt the hard way. <laughs> Of what happens when the risk doesn't get properly assessed in a particular situation? You got Jed fucking blown. And I think I, I've got a. Even in the military, post this event, I think I was, you know, in some ways quite, quite fortunate to get through it. But also, I came with this, with, with this, um, belief around risk, which was probably a bit different to other people's because I knew at the end of the day, the real risk was was flesh and blood. Yeah, was. That's the real deal. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I, I, I bring that to the business world as well because I think a lot of people, you know, I work with a lot of boards and they they talk about risk and they look at their risk registers and you say, okay, what's the biggest risk of somebody getting injured in your you know, in your factory or something like that? And they say, oh, well, we, we could be found in breach of, of workplace it's more, safety uh, legislation. It's like, hang yeah, on. It's, it's more about on. punishment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's yeah, okay, that's, that's the compliance piece but the real risk here is that you're, you're going to be losing, you know, your staff will die and their families will be affected. So is it a duty of care stuff? Is it, is, it, is this um, intrinsically related to the business's duty of care towards customers and staff and everything else? I think it's, um, that's, that's part of it, but it's, but it's being able to conceptualise those risks, understand them um, in the context of your business, more mathematical then. So it's not it's not it's not the duty of care like in a legal sense, you know, or a societal sense saying you, the business, have a duty of care for that particular individual's health and safety. But it's more you're more talking about look, irrespective of all that, in every business, there's there's threats of things going wrong. Yep, it's reading into those, you know, the lines on the risk register and saying, okay, this is what you're saying in it. How does it look? How does the treatment strategy look for that risk? And are you prepared for if all your mitigation strategies fall over, are you prepared for that risk being realised, you know, finding yourself on the front page of The Australian because something that's happened. Or scaffolding broke. Yeah, yeah. We're seeing it now. We're going through it right now. Yeah, and that and that's a, that's a real obvious safety one, but it's, you know, the front page of The Australian, it's every day is, is businesses going through turmoil um, and often it's, probably in their risk register, that sort of thing, but it, they, they haven't prepared themselves for it. So uh, your business is called, I just, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I've got to ask you about this, but yeah, trebuchet, 
Trebuchet pivot, yeah. So yeah what the hell is that? Like, so, what is that word? So, uh, I, I was wondering whether that was your surname or something when I first no, no. Sort of read the brief. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a deliberate name. So the, a trebuchet is a medieval siege weapon. So it's like a oh. catapult, So, but slightly different in the fact that it uses a, a, a counterweight, um, which is raised up, and then a long arm down to the other end. It's, it's a bad podcasting with me using my hands. but um, And then on the other end, is, it, it flings a boulder. So the, the counterweight drops... The arm comes up and it flings a boulder right into the castle. And that's wall. called that's called a trebuchet. That's a trebuchet. Was it Roman or something? Whatever is it? Uh, so medieval. Yeah, I think it's French. French yeah. medieval. Um, okay. And the pivot point is, you know, it's kind of the fruity metaphor around, you know, the the downward force is being turned into upward. Yeah. Okay, because I thought it was something to do with pivoting your business. Okay, so no. okay, so your your there, business concept is about the pivot. In a trebuchet, and the yeah. importance of the pivot or the, the the central piece. Yeah, and there's a bit more to it as well. I went, well, explain it. I want to know. When um, I went to Afghanistan, I was I told you I got interested in in, in bombs. Uh, and I well, that's, well, was Afghanistan that was pre Iraq? No, that was post Iraq. Post Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So this is post your injury. Yeah, 2009. I'd worked in the sort of strategic world around understanding training needs for for improvised protecting our forces against improvised devices. What equipment we needed. Um, again, getting into those understanding risk and then how we how we treat that. Um, and a lot of it is training and equipment um, and changing the mindset of our soldiers for working in, in these environments. But what we also did um, was what they call technical intelligence. So understanding aspects of the bomb, how they're being used, um, so we could then feed that that piece around equipment and training. Um, but as part of that, I went to, went to Afghanistan for, for nine months and ran what they call a weapons intelligence team. So I went out to bomb sites, collected evidence from 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 the bomb, reversed engineer it so so we could understand all the aspects to it, which was good for 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 informing commanders about the threat they were facing, but also it was fed into the intelligence world so we could track and target insurgent bomb makers. Um, Before they, they put the bomb down because you knew what they were looking for to build the bomb. Is that what you're talking about? No, it's so we'd, we'd look at... Um, you know, geographically where the bomb was, what it was trying to achieve, uh, what the components were. And this is all improvised stuff and it's in rural Afghanistan. So it was all made from bits of scrap timber, from motorcycle limb, inner tubes, things like that, um, um, saw blades, all sorts of stuff. But How the hell do these guys know this shit? I mean, you know, they're, they're not well educated, but they're not stupid. Yeah, you know, yeah. They're very smart and, and they were very cluey about how to use all this scrap to to build triggers for bombs. Um, wow! So I'm sure that would they be googling this? I mean, like I don't know. How, how, no, no. So a lot of it is word of mouth and training. Right. So they would have insurgent trainers come through and. We're talking about Taliban. Is this a Taliban? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but all, all these insurgent commanders, so Taliban commanders, would get objective names. So they they they'd get named after medieval weapons. So you'd have objective sword. You objective named or they named them? No. So. The, the coalition had a list of priorities for insurgents who they would drop a drop a bomb on or go spend send special forces to go see them in the middle of the night um, and so they they'd they'd label them with an objective name right so sword pike dagger objective trebuchet right um, an objective trebuchet was an asshole who lived right. about 15 kilometers out to the east of where we were operating very cluey and would develop would build these anti-handling switches, so designed that when you were trying to disarm it, if you moved a rock, it would release a little plunger and the bomb Blow would go off. Yeah. So this 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 person, Trebuchet, yep. so named, so called, yep. 
was one you experienced in Afghanistan who was causing a lot of havoc. Yeah, and and we're getting off topic, but yeah, no, when no, I was th- when I was thinking topic. about when I was thinking about business names, I was like, I'd like to call that's the asshole. Did you get him? So um, not when I was there, but they got him. But he's he's no longer with us. No, okay, they yeah. got him, but he probably caused a lot fair bit of damage, and he did. And yeah. I knew so much about him, like I yeah. I. I Felt like I knew him personally because we'd get all the intel- all the other intelligence reporting coming in. So I knew I knew how many brothers he had. I knew where he was operating. I knew the compounds he'd been visiting. I I even went to the sites where his bombs had had been either detonated or they'd been found and rendered safe. And, and was he good at developing these bombs? Was he very clever? Guy. Yeah, very yeah. clever. Guy. Very um, very dangerous adversity in a yeah. war zone. Yeah. Would like an engineer? Would you? Would you call him? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah I think so, and, and quite a craftsman in in fabricating. Yeah, so there was some sort of weird form of respect for what he could do yeah, in, in terms of his skill, yep. not, not so much his ethics, but his skill. But it was war, and he, I guess he thought he was fighting for the right cause yeah. too. Yeah, and he came, uh, I can't remember any specific incident where he killed Australians, but he came very close to killing Australians on numerous occasions. So that's that's an amazing experience. I mean, apart from being badly injured, that experience in itself, um, living in a world where there's this, individual who is a massive threat to both trains and other people who has high levels of experience and skill to the extent so much so that you would probably respect his skill as opposed to enjoying it. Um, if I imagine if you're in business, um, if you had this threat sitting to your right in your business that's going to come and try and destroy your business and, and you knew this threat was credible yep. and had good experience and, and skills. And by the way, I've been through that in business, and it wasn't so much a, a physical threat, like like people getting injured, et cetera, but it was a like a takeover threat, yeah. and yeah. I had to fight off it like a, a, one of the, the most highly regarded takeover organisations in Australian history. Yeah, right. And uh, that was only last year. And I was just only thinking to myself like, what it was like. It was really tough like uh, because I respected the threat, mm. and, um, and it was constantly over my shoulder, constantly. Um, so much so it would keep you awake at night sometimes. Yep. yep. Uh, so that's the same experience that you you had actually in war, which yep. is worse than what I had. But now you're taking that into the business. So Trebuchet yep. Pivot yep. is your business, and that business specialises in what? So, and I, and I guess I need to just tell a little bit more about my military background as well. So I I, I had an amazing career, and I'm you know, my career's still going in a in a part time capacity. But I, I've done some amazing jobs and. One of the last ones I did was I spent a couple of years training Australian soldiers in what they call a mission rehearsal exercise. So the first, sorry, the last bit of training they do before they went to either Iraq or Afghanistan. So we develop scenarios and walk them through um, and test them on on decision making. Throw every conceivable scenario at them that they might face when they get to the war zone. So when they get there, they're not coming together as a group and having to make decisions for the first time. They're already a well-drilled sort of humming team. Um, when I, when I left the military, I saw a lot of organizations who really struggled with decision-making, particularly short notice decision-making, um, uh, particularly some organizations who, you know, highly intelligent, highly educated executives, uh, who, whose normal decision-making cycle was sort of three weeks and they'd like to have 98% of the information. Mm. So when you say, Hey, the, the police are at the front gate the media's on the telephone, um, you need to make a decision in 45 minutes, here's 60% of the information. They, they struggle to, to provide any 
any decision making, any leadership to the organisation at those those times. Mm. So I, our big organisations are very much like that. Everything gets sanitised on the way through. No one wants to make a mistake. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So um, don't make a decision, which is a mistake in itself. So the and and I know it, it probably gets said in corporate circles, but I know the military. It's like the, the best thing you can do is make the right decision. Second best thing you can do is make the worst uh, the the wrong decision. Yep. The worst thing you can do is make, make no that. decision. Hundred percent. Yeah. And that, but that that applies to business too. Yeah. Yeah. At, at, at least if you're making the wrong decision. That'll start to play out, and you can you have senses to to yeah, understand yeah. that, and you can react to it. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> no decision is a decision, that, and it has consequences. Yeah. So I I I saw the really good teams were the ones which had a deliberate decision making process. Uh, so they would whereby they had to arrive at a decision. So they had yeah. to, uh, or, or uh, even if that decision was to collect more information, um, and we'll meet again in. In thirty minutes, once we've once we've confirmed that that assumption that we've made, or so yeah, it's really understand what we know. What are the facts? What can, what assumptions can we make about it? Scenario planning around what is the what is the most likely thing that's going to happen, uh, and then and it's a really really military one as well. But what is the most dangerous thing that we think might happen? So if we if we're thinking about the likely likelihood, the most likely thing that's going to happen, and the most dangerous thing that's going to happen. And that shapes our thinking and our planning. Um, what, what's going to happen will probably fall within the, the parameters of those two. So, the pivot business, though, does that actually teach people how to make? Does it? Do you go into corporations and and show them or discuss with them or lay out for them the decision making process around yep. threats? Yeah. So basically, we, we look at their risk register and say, okay, let's let's develop scenarios around some of these some of these risks. Mm. Um, some some really obvious ones in Australia recently. You know, the Dreamworld tragedy mm. is just a classic um, set of scenarios where there were all these safety issues, but also the leadership of the organisation. Um, there was a lot of things that fell out of that they could have done a lot better. Um, and I think if they'd had a, a decision-making process in there where they really took the blinkers off and analysed what was going on, they would have done a lot better at protecting the organisation. So, is, so if you went in there... To, to Ardent, which owns yep. Dreamworld. So what would you say to them? Would you say, um, you know, what's your proposal? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sa- saying to you give them a, a solution, but do you walk in and say, listen, uh, for a fee, my, you, uh, Garth and his team, um, will come and look at all your future risks, assuming they're reopening their park, um, and will help you build management processes to make sure those risk, those risk um Aversion systems work. I mean, what, yeah. what what do you do? Yeah, so come in, say like, let's let's go through your your risk register. Let's understand what your risks are. Let's let's um, conceptualize. Let's, let's understand what that risk is going to look like. Let's contextualize it. So how's it going to affect the organisation? And let's build some uh, some training scenarios to step you through if that risk is realised. So you know, like the like the tragic event. Let's let's build a scenario around multiple fatalities from a ride malfunction, uh, and step them through that. So the executive, they have this list of things that could go wrong for the organisation, and they are already prepared for for that potentially happening. They they have a process that they can work through, and that's what I do. Is I I help them understand a deliberate process for their decision making, uh, and then I and reinforce that. The, the team has that that process well understood, well drilled. So when something does happen, they they have the assurance that they can get through it. 
And it, it, can I ask you this, Garth? It, I mean, I, for me, my business, we don't have anything that many things that are dangerous in our environment. Yep. The Yellow Brick Road, for example, we, we we don't. But 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 there are things that are dangerous. Because I mean, I'm just lending money. It is dangerous, I guess. Money's dangerous, but um, it, but the, the the ardent mob, you know, with Dreamworld and um, uh, I guess factory floors, building sites. There's obvious physical risks and dangers in those places. Are you helping them do something to avert the danger, so that if ever if they ever get if it if the if the, the event ever occurs, the the board and or the business can stand up and say, look, we did everything we should do um, in order to manage the risk, or are you trying to show them actually how to stop the risk occurring? Um, Which one is it? So a, a bit of both, I guess, is is the the weak answer there. Um, but I, what I would say is it's it's not just the physical safety stuff. It's it's anything that can that can affect your organisation. So reputational risk, operational mm. risk, um, you know, co- competition, uh, sexual harassment, absolutely. claims, etc. Yep. Just have a look at the front page of the Australian. Yeah, see yeah. what see what companies are getting caught yeah, out yeah. At every day. And uh, is there much take up? I mean. Uh, uh, are uh, businesses actually taking you up on this? I mean, yeah, so, you're getting good demand. Yeah, so I mean, it, it it really falls into that crisis management piece, and that's a that's a quite a mature industry in Australia. Yeah, but I, that's more about PR. For me, when I hear crisis management, yeah. the old school crisis manager. That's right. Have I got a PR person? It's about against, the messaging. Yeah, yeah. How, how do we get the messaging? Right? And how do we get to this journalist to make sure someone runs a good article? Well, because yeah. we know this guy he's going to run a shit article. And that's how that's how organisations are getting themselves unstuck. They are sending out messages, but it's not backed up by the actions of the organisation. Ardent Leisure was a classic example. You know, they were saying, "We're going to do this. We're going to do this." There was a, there was even the media interview at the end of their AGM when they said, "We've been in touch with the families." And one of the reporters said, "I've just been on the phone with one of the families. They're furious because they haven't heard from you, and you're saying that you've been talking to them." So, it, the messaging is one part of it, but they've got to have all the activities happening behind the scenes to. To actually back up what they're saying. So, and at what point does this um, this sort of fits under compliance a little bit within a business, compliance and risk? Yep. Um, I mean, what stage? I mean, I don't know where does this all end up because most businesses would see this as a, a new layer of cost. Mm-hmm. You would probably argue, well, this layer of cost is here to avert even a greater cost. Yeah. Is that is that the argument? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So it's about being able to provide that leadership in a time of crisis, and when you look at you know your your market share dropping only a few percent, well, suddenly the cost of my services become really irrelevant. How much re-education of the executives and or boards of these organisations is required? I mean, are you Ash, do you find that you have to re-educate people? It depends on the organisation. So it, often there are times that have really strong CEOs um, who, are, who are quite good at making decisions. But you say, yeah, okay, what happens if you're not here? Um, and they say, oh, okay. So who, who's got the decision-making authority? Who's going to be protecting the organisation? Even if it's for that 12 or 24 hours um, from from an incident occurring. Uh, so it can be training their, their proxies. Uh, so yeah. The two OCs. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Gary Weiss, uh, the chairman of um, Ardent, um, yep. I think you should be talking to Garth. <laughs> um, and I know Gary really well. And if he knew that we were having this conversation, no doubt Gary will be listening to this uh, podcast. Um, uh, Gary would give you a call and actually get you to talk to him. And I don't mean to call out ardent leisure. No, um, I, but ju- I, I nor I. But but it, it, it's, it's a just good one example. Of those classic ones. Well, right? we've had and examples building sites recently where young guys falling off, you know, scaffolding and dying, etc. I mean, uh, 
it's, it's really interesting. Like, and I'm always saying this to people who listen to the podcast. Sometimes it takes, in your case, 20 odd years, but sometimes it takes 10, 15 years to build a skill base, irrespective of university, um, you know, education, et cetera, et cetera. It takes a long time to build a skill base to actually uh, emerge into a, a business formula that will work in our markets. Yep. And what's interesting is that you've taken your experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, all your training in between those periods and I guess also your own experience of getting badly injured and you've turned it into a business which um, for some reason I, I can see the demand out there, um, like big time. Uh, and because and really to some extent it disrupts the old school um, the, the old school way of managing a crisis was as you wait for the crisis to occur and you had a really good um, management team who used to go, as, as you said, message, yeah. and you'd fight the bad messages. Mm. It was about fighting the bad messages was what you're doing is you're taking a few steps backwards and you're saying, no, let's try and make sure the event doesn't occur and that we've got a good system in place to explain how the event occurred, even though it, but it occurred outside our, our system. So everybody is at least able to stand up and look a camera in the eye and yeah. say, we did our best. Yeah. We're never going to stop the threat, but we did our best to um, remediate the situation if it occurred. Yeah. And there, there is still quite a lot of that in Australia. There's a real she'll be right kind of attitude, yeah. which I love. I just want to reinforce it a bit and say, yeah, she'll be right. And we've, we can back that up by saying we've actually trained for the emergence of, of the risks as, as we know them. Well, Garth Callender and your new business or your business – Trebuchet pivot, mate. I got to learn something new. I, I can I can imagine what the trebuchet looks like now. Yep. Um, I do know what they look like. I've seen in movies and stuff, but uh, um, it's really cool to talk to you about this. Um, I've never really met a a, a veteran, particular. Well, I have met Vietnam veterans, but I've never met a vet out of Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. I respect what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. You've turned this into a business. You're experiencing a business. You're not sitting around whinging and complaining. Not at all. Um, and uh, I and I just a bit of a shout out from both of us, both from Garth and I, for all those veterans who are going to be doing what they can in uh, Veteran Health Week next week. And if you want to go and try and enjoy some of the celebrations and some of the support and awareness programs. Just go to any local RSL next week. Check it out. See what the RSL is doing in relation to our Veterans Health Week. Garth, thanks very much. Good luck with the trebuchet pivot and all your risk management in the corporate world, mate. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. 